Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. How are you this morning? You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. This morning I have two guests. My first guest, both of them authors, one a psychologist, the other a psychiatrist. My first guest is uh, Ina Lipkowitz, and she's written a new book called Words to Eat By, Five Foods and the Culinary History of the English Language. She teaches at MIT. She has taught at Harvard. She's always had an interest in food. According to her bio on psychology today, which I just looked at this morning, she was born in New York, and uh, apparently before she was barely able to walk, she surprised her parents by standing up on her chair at a restaurant and screaming, I want Chinese, not surprised. So food has been a big part of her life since the very beginning. My second guest is uh, a physician, and uh, his name is Dr. Amir Levine. And his book is about, we're going to talk about food first with Ina, and then secondly, we're going to talk about relationships with Dr. Levine. And his new book is called Attached, The New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love. So food and love, my two favorite topics. But first, Dr. Ina Lipkowitz, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks so much. And if I may say one thing, you may. I am not, in fact, a psychologist, although oh, I have not? great okay. respect for the profession. I actually have a doctorate in comparative literature and biblical studies, not psychology. Good. Well, and I'm so glad I come to food from a different angle. Terrific. So we're going to get a whole different perspective. We see food from a different filter, not a psychologist, right? But right. A, okay, good. Well, Five Foods in the Culinary History of the English Language, Words to Eat By. So I guess your premise is that cuisine um, really reveals a lot about a particular culture. Absolutely. What we eat, how we name food, what we eat, and um, it's, you know, I just, as I say, I got your book just recently. It's a fascinating book. Let's talk about, well, first of all, why did you, why did you write a book about cuisine and culture? Cuisine and culture. I like to think of it a little bit cuisine as food, and I'll tell you why cuisine is sort of a French word, and this book is so much about how we English speakers think everything is better when it's translated into French, so that's one thing. The book is really about the power of words, so it is sort of psychological, how words affect us, most especially how food words affect us, and that's what gets me, um, it makes me so curious. I'll give you a few instances. haagen doesn't that sound so good? Yeah. But why? It doesn't mean anything. It has no meaning whatsoever. It was completely made up by a guy who had created a new high-butterfat ice cream and wanted a foreign-sounding name, in particular, Scandinavian. So the name means nothing, but we love it. What about? So in other words, that has to do with marketing, right? How is he going to market this buttercream or this really high, rich ice cream? And if you call it something that sounds like a fancy name, it'll, you can market it better, sell more product. 
Yes, but this is what I find so great. You keep going and you realize that the marketers are not creating anything. They know how we respond to words. So take two words, not marketing words. Apple pie, apple tart. How do they sound different? An apple tart, people tend to think sounds fancier than an apple pie, which is sort of down home and you make it for Thanksgiving. A tart is fancier. Why? Why does it sound fancier? Because I guess apple tart to me, I think about, if you're asking me the question, I think apple tart sounds like it sounds French. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so French food and French cuisine, and so it sounds a lot more like oak cuisine. or Absolutely, you know, that, yeah. and it's still an English word, but it comes to us from French. So even what the marketers know is that we respond to certain language groups and words that come from them in a positive way, and other words we have a less positive response. So it is our psychological response to food words, even more than to the foods, to the names of the foods. And I find that so compelling, how we come to these associations to words. Well, food, and, and I'm going to get into this later, I want to ask you, but, uh, but before I do ask a question that I have been thinking about all morning, words to eat by, what are the five foods? that you're talking about. Five. Right. Well, the five foods I had in mind, the Surgeon General's Food Pyramid, and now Michelle Obama has changed it since I wrote the book. It's now a dinner plate, but I had that pyramid in mind. So the fruits and vegetables. For fruits, I have apple. For vegetable, I have leeks. People always wonder why. I can talk about that in a minute. So apples, leeks. Then we go to milk for our dairy, meat for the protein category, and bread for the carbohydrate or grain category. So apple, leek, milk, meat, bread. Those are the five foods. All right, should we take them one by one? Sure. Okay, let's start with the first one, apple. Apple is this great word in the English language. In fact, one of the oldest words we have, not just food names, but one of the oldest names in general. It goes back like 3,500 years. And it was on the island of Britain before any English language. The people, everybody knows about King Arthur and Avalon, myths of Avalon. All those Celtic people who lived there used the word aval, from which we get apple. Avalon means the apple, the island of apples. Isn't that amazing? Merlin ate apples. That word, all throughout Northern Europe, apfel, aval, um, abel, all of those apple words. So it was on the island thousands of years ago, and no matter who came to conquer the island, no other word would stick. The Romans came, and they brought the malum. We don't call it a malum. The Normans came later, they brought a pum. We don't call it a pum. We just held on to our apple word, and we have a lot attached to that apple. Well, the apple word, and, I, and, and you talk about it in your book, I mean, it goes back to Adam and Eve with the apple. What is the significance of that? Actually, you know, um, the fruit, the apple, because it does have a lot of biblical significance, doesn't it? Sure, but when you actually read Genesis, that's where Adam and Eve are, there is no apple. We think there's an apple, but when you really read it, it's not there. So it's one of the great sort of secrets of biblical studies that there is no apple in Genesis. So then the question is, well, why do we think it's an apple? Why do so many paintings in museums show an apple tree in Eden? And I think there are a couple of reasons that say a lot. One is, in Latin, the Bible was translated into Latin, the word for apple is malum. I think I said that before we get malic acid comes from that. Malic Mm -hmm. acid is the acidic element in the apple. But there's a word for evil, malum, same word. So it's a pun in Latin. That's where we get malice and malicious and malevolent and malady, all those words. So the evil apple, malum malum, it's a nice pun. And then... 
when the, the Romans uh, came up north, they found these people who were eating apples up there. Apples were part of their religion, and they wanted to make that religion look not so good because they were bringing their Latin Bible. So isn't it nice that the evil apple, all of a sudden, is the fruit that the people had been eating before the Bible came to show them the light? So the apple was that northern fruit uh, that was then identified as the fruit of the fall, but still people kept eating it and calling it by that name, apple. Complicated story, huh? Well, it's, it's, it is a complicated story, one that I had never heard. I didn't realize that, obviously, and I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of other people who didn't either. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so apple, malum, apple is bad um, yeah. or evil. And just think about Snow White. You know, isn't it fun that when Snow White, is it a poison apple that, they, that the queen gives her? Apples are often identified with evil ever after. There's nothing really evil about an apple, but it came to be identified with it after that. New York is the second biggest apple-producing state in the country. <laughs> and it's called the Big Good Apple. Good for us. Good for our economy, or should be. And I'm, I'm from New York, so I, uh, yes. Yeah. All right, so that's apple, and that leaks. 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 All right, so explain to us the significance of leaks. I know. Everybody asks about that because they're not used as much as onions. And everybody says, well, why didn't you do onions? And my answer is all the words I use in the book, I focus on in the book, are old English words. So I was just talking about apple, bread I'll talk about. Leak is an old English word. Uh, the, fact, the reason that we, sorry, the fact that we call a leek a member of the onion family, onion is a French word, like onion, shows the influence, again, of French in our language, how we prefer that, because a long time ago, the onion was part of the leek family. The leek was the allium that was most eaten in Britain. And garlic, people don't know this, is named after the leek. That lick at the end of garlic is leek. So it was a type of a leek. The shallot, the scallion, the chive, those names all go back to onion. They're types of onions. But garlic is a type of leek, and those two grew in Britain before any of the other peoples came. So that's why I focus on the leek. Yeah, because leeks are not something that people necessarily, I think, perhaps, I'm, I mean, I'm generalizing, but I mean, uh, they, I, I don't know how many, you know, if you go to the grocery store, you know, how much, how many, you know, leeks aren't as popular as onions, for instance. No, certainly not. Now, Julia Child, what was her famous passage? The quotation, it's hard to imagine civilization without the onion. That's what <laughs> she said. But she was the French chef. Uh, in Britain, leeks are very popular. And there's even a campaign now to bring them back here. You'll see them more often at supermarkets. Granted, they usually have a little tag that says something like "milds" with a taste like onions. They have to identify them because people are unfamiliar with them. Absolutely. Yeah. And How do some of these? Well, that's let's you know, given that example, that they they have to explain what a leak is, or it's usually mm-hmm. there is a little tag in the grocery store explaining what it is. Maybe unless it's a specialty store, but. How in the United States did certain foods become more popular than other? I mean, like why you know onions became more popular than leeks, or you know that certain foods have gained prominence over the, let's say even in the in maybe even the last century. How mm-hmm. does that happen? Certain foods in the United States. Well, leeks after a while they fell out of favor for all sorts of reasons. Um, 
There's a great English food writer who died maybe 10 years ago, I think, maybe 15 years ago, Jane Grigson. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she wrote these wonderful things and about the leek in particular. She said, well, this was the noble English vegetable, and it suffered an eclipse at the hands of the onion, of the French onion. So she was talking about it from that perspective. In the United States... I don't think leeks ever really took off, but certainly related to them, ramps, wild ramps, are very popular in the um, sort of along the, the southeastern states, in the Virginias, the Carolinas, etc. You have festivals to the ramp. So these wild vegetables got very popular there. But certainly the restaurant scene in the 20th century in the United States was very French-dominated, and you're not going to have as many of the wild vegetables or the wild ramps as you do the French uh, vegetables like the onion, for instance. So I think that's part of maybe what you're getting at. Yeah, okay, well, that's the 20th century. Now bring us into the 21st century. Are things beginning to evolve or change in terms of what we eat or how we... Oh, I think hugely. Yeah. You know, you can see this enormous progression when you go back to the 20th century. Well, think of Gourmet Magazine, for instance, that got its start right after World War II. In the 40s, I believe, it was Gourmet, the magazine of good living, and that was haute cuisine. People loved it. It was, at the beginning very French. Most of its, its articles, most of its recipes were French. It just went out of business. What was it, two years ago, a year or two ago, Gourmet Magazine closed up shop. Uh, a lot of the haute cuisine is now being replaced by a new kind of, what do they call it, nose-to-tail eating, for instance. I haven't it heard was, of it. Well, like the Bobby Flay, like the, that, those restaurants are popular, aren't they? Bobby the, Flay's. David Chang in New York City with his Mamofuku um, monopoly. He's got lots of them, very meaty, great big cuts of meat. And as they say, they're not doing the French stuff. They're doing something else. Or there's this wild food movement, um, wild vegetables. In other words, weeds, dandelion greens, um, purslane, different foragers on the payroll of many restaurants. Alice Waters out in California has a forager. She's not the only one. She was the first who hired a forager. So these are big changes from haute cuisine. You'd never have that. And there are many other such changes. Well, do you think, Ina, as you're describing it, I'm thinking our, our culture also is changing. We're becoming, I think, this is just my view, but I think we're becoming cruder. And as we become cruder, maybe the, and I'm using the word cruder, I can't think of another word, our, the food we eat is cruder too. Like in, you know, as you say, Gourmet Magazine, I used to have a subscription for Gourmet Magazine for, I don't mm-hmm. know, 20 years. And then mm-hmm. as, you went, as you say, then it wasn't popular. Um, but now, I, 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 I think in probably many different areas, our culture is cruder. And that would include the food. Well, it's interesting you put it that way because, I think a lot of people would agree with you, and I'm tempted to agree with you, but I also look at it a bit historically maybe and see that some of these large cuts of meat or some of the wild vegetables or some of the heirloom fruits or the artisanal breads are going back to older ways of making foods. And what's interesting is crude is opposed to sophisticated or refined. Those were the words that went um, that came from... The Mediterranean, the Mediterranean diet is such a wonderful diet. People love that so much. That goes back historically to when the Romans, I'm jumping way back in history here, came up to northern Europe and found the people up there, the words they used were crude, barbarians, barely civilized. So why is it that one culture gets the monopoly on culture and civilized and refined, and the people up north who spoke a language that they couldn't understand who ate foods they had never seen before, were seen as crude and barbaric. 
See, there's a big culture gap. I prefer to think of difference as opposed to crude and refined. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense, although I, I still like it's sort of hard for me. To, I mean, the way we eat, I mean, I still get back to perhaps crude and refined. I mean, we eat mm-hmm. perhaps in the last century, um, it was not only what we ate but how we ate. We took mm-hmm. more time with our food. We weren't stuffing in the food in five minutes and then running to some activity. That's um, true. You know, it sort of began perhaps in the latter part of the 20th century, but now it's just it's simply not just what we eat, but how we eat is cruder. I mean, we I still that word still it's hard for me to get out of my head. But I see, yeah, I see what you mean, and it's as though the pleasure of the table isn't there anymore. As exactly. you say, you're pushing food in as you're rushing, but the whole pace of life has gone so frenetic. There are mornings you don't have time for breakfast, and you're eating lunch on the run. Uh, everything is quick, quick, quick. And so I see your point there, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Can we relate this to the, um, I'm not going to call it a food epidemic, the obesity epidemic? Um, um, how is that related to how we eat and what we eat? Well, that's an interesting one, and there we're going into things that I really don't dwell on in the book, but when I think about it, certainly you think, again, much of my book focuses on the tension between different cultures, both in terms of the foods, the languages, the attitudes about food, but certainly the Northern Europeans are the ones who are bigger-boned, heavier-set, the milk drinkers, the meat-eaters. They historically needed more calories because it was colder up there, and down in the Mediterranean, people ate lighter. It was an olive oil-based diet and grains and fruits and vegetables. Today, we know that's much healthier. I don't know if they knew it back then. That's what grew. But those kind of distinctions, and I think in the United States uh, has a lot of that northern European milk-drinking, meat-eating, uh, butter, lard, you know, all of those sorts of very high-caloric uh, ingredients that certainly. Well, at the same time, we become more sedentary. So you know, maybe yeah. there was a reason for it then, perhaps, because living in northern climates, cold climates, and working outside and doing heavy labor, you needed to eat those kinds of foods. But we're eating those kinds of foods, but we're not burning up those kinds of calories. No, absolutely not. I know gym memberships go up, and you know, I I am a, a swimmer myself, and I swim four or five times a week, and every time I go to the pool in January, you see all the people who have taken out their gym memberships, and they fade off after a few weeks. I think that's the New Year's resolution, people. And so that little exercise and too much eating, but I think we all we all know that, right? Yeah, we all know it. I don't know that we all do something about it, no. but we do. You're no. right. We all know it. Uh, what about, And I was just thinking about some of the foods, you know, you talk about eating on the run. I mean, the names of foods, the, the Mm-hmm. The, we we talk about I mean Big Mac quarter pounder it's always bigger better not better bigger has like an aggressive kind of description to the hamburger yeah it's funny you know I have a blog as well and in one of the posts I wrote a few months back I was writing about how okay I'll I'll put my cards on the table I love Starbucks coffee but I won't use their am I going to get in trouble saying this on the you air you can say whatever you want because it's, uh... <laughs> I don't like to use their lingo with and I never get it straight like why is a small at all. And what comes after that? The middle one is the venti or the grande. I always forget the tall, the grande, the venti. So I just order a medium coffee. And I can never get these names straight because I don't understand why a small is a tall. And then I think about, like, shrimp, jumbo shrimp. Everything is big, or olives, which are colossal and super colossal. So we like, we Americans like things to be big, certainly, all the names with that, with supersize me phenomenon. Yeah, 
supersize me. Mm-hmm. What? Ab- all right, here's another one. I mean, we we have now stuff is we call it organic, free range. Mm-hmm. So those are also. I mean, I know when I go to the grocery store, I'm all, I now actually I'm always shopping. I try to get as many organic vegetables as I can. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So do I. And again, my take on that might be a little bit unusual. So today, natural is very much a positive word, right? We like to think of it all natural, all natural cereals, all natural vitamins, nature made. All of those things are very, very positive words today. But that has not always been the case because when you go way back in history, obviously I've got this sort of historical perspective. I Uh keep drawing on that. When you go back to the period that really intrigues me, that first uh, encounter of the Mediterranean food with northern food, the Mediterranean saw it as their job in life to transform nature. You know, in The African Queen, have you seen that movie with Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart, when Catherine Hepburn says to him, nature is what we were put on this earth to rise above. It's a great line. (laughs) The Romans sort of saw it as their view to rise above nature. So if you gave them a natural fruit or vegetable, they would graft it. They would improve it. Agriculture was very important to them. They would transform meat. Nature was what the animals ate. They were people. And that was part of their looking down at the northerners because they saw them as too natural, too close to nature. They didn't transform anything. They would find some vegetable, you know, forage it, hunt it, gather it, and that was fine. So it's interesting that we today, like all natural, Whereas for a long time, haute cuisine is not really about natural food. It's about transforming it and refining it. Interesting. Does it have to do with control? I mean, is there something in, you mean, you're talking about, the, well, going back and historically, you talk about the Romans wanting to transform the food, and they want to be in control of the food. And in, I, think in, you act, I think that's absolutely right. I think you hit the nail on the head. There's a food historian, an Italian food historian, and he says that really all um, are, are Cooking techniques, when you think about it, are controlled spoilage. How do you like that? Cheese making is trying to control milk to prevent it from spoiling, transform it into cheese. Cure meat, smoke meat, salt meat, any of those are all ways to prevent spoilage. So what the Romans really mastered was the art of controlling spoilage. And he does a lot with that control. They wanted to control their ingredients, control their world, control nature. And when they looked outside of the Roman Empire, they saw people who did not have these means of control, and they looked down on them very much. Well, if you fast forward to today, not only are we trying our control, maybe has reached epidemic proportions, we control with chemicals in terms of wanting to preserve the food and be in control of our food and eat it when we mm-hmm. want to and eat foods that are not in season. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have a, my mother always talks about we never ate fruits or vegetables that weren't in season. You ate seasonal ve- vegetables and fruit because they weren't packaged and, and you know, chemically packaged, et cetera, and, and, and that was it. It was all Absolutely. That. Was, yeah. That's why I don't want to do things. I live in New England. I don't want to buy berries in January. Where were they grown? How did they get here? And they're always in the supermarket, strawberries and blueberries, January and February. They come from Chile. From Chile, and that's a long distance. They travel more than I do. You know, so, that, <laughs> so that I agree with you completely as far as that is concerned. The other thing to think about, by the way, is even when you're eating organic, natural vegetables, of course those vegetables are not natural anymore. They've all been engineered so that if you were to see 
in the ancient days what corn looked like or what a leek looked like or what an apple looked like. They've all, they're all the results of human engineering, grafting and transplanting and selective breeding. So they've all been transformed. I don't really think you want to eat a wholly natural wild apple. It would be hard and sour, uh, more like a crab apple. So all the apples you like, they are human engineered products. Well, I like hard, sour green apples. I, I, to be honest, I don't like sweet apples, and it's very difficult to find hard, tart apples. But, it is. It is. Yeah. But so, tell me, what is what was the corn like? Tiny. There was an archaeological find. Um, I'm going to forget where was it in New Mexico. I think I'm not even quite sure where it was. I'll blank on that. It was like 56 year, 5600 years old. An entire ear of corn was about the size of a human thumb. So think of that. Over time, it was selectively bred, of course, to be as big as possible, as sweet as possible, as juicy as possible. But originally, they were tiny little corn on the cobs. So there's another instance. Yeah, it's not surprising. And even and tomatoes, I think, is another example. I remember um, many years ago. I mean, tomatoes, Rutgers tomatoes, the tomatoes that were there were wonderful, sweet, succulent tomatoes. Now, if you go buy to, they're all pumped up with water. What do they call it? Hydroponics, mm-hmm. so that the they're bigger. Right, they're completely clean. They, they're the color of what would you call that color? Um, I don't know, but it's not a natural color because it's all consistent. It's the same. It's as if you painted them. All the most of the fruits and vegetables that you see in the grocery store, because we, I mean, I, this goes along with our culture. We want it to look perfect and perfectly mm-hmm. round and the perfect color. And if you, in nature, if you go look at it, they're like people. If you go look at uh, an orange, for instance, isn't orange all orange, or a lemon isn't all yellow, or these tomatoes aren't just one color red. Mm-hmm. Um, but we I want our that's... foods to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. We want them to look like what kindergartners draw them as. You know, there's that mental image you got in your head. An apple should be red and rosy. A tomato should be red. A lemon should be yellow. So we want them to look like what we expect them to be. Absolutely. And, and in real life, they're, they're mottled and splotchy and dappled and imperfect. And that's the way nature intended them to be. But we like to improve on nature. So that's why we have a funny relationship going on with that all-natural thing when you think about it. Yeah, because it really isn't. It's far from all-natural. Um, and, and think about milk. That's another food I'd talk about, or drink. What do you want to call it, a food or a drink? In the book, everybody thinks that milk is so pure and wholesome and all of that. But it's a completely engineered product. This 4%, whole milk is 4% fat, but no cow produces 4% uh, butter fat in the milk. It's all the different milks put together and spun around and then made very regular and uniform, and then it's homogenized and it's pasteurized, and that the milk you drink is completely a product of um, the... It's an industrial product, so it's not as natural as you would imagine. So if it's an industrial project, Ina, is it good for us or is it not? I don't think I'm the one to, to weigh in on that. I know there's a huge controversy going on about that right now. And just as I said, I'm in the New England area, and the Boston Globe had an article, I think it was last week or this week, I lose track, of exactly this. Is it healthier to drink pasteurized milk, which some people call cooked milk, or is it healthier to drink raw milk? The raw milk advocates say that it's healthier, that Louis Pasteur and his pasteurization techniques were necessary in the 19th century when dairies were filthy, when everything was wood and you couldn't sterilize things and all of it was needed then. But today, they say, that's no longer needed. And in fact, the pasteurization 
kills off healthy bacteria, healthy microbes. There's a big controversy waging. I think the FDA says one thing, independent dairy owners say another thing. I'm not even going to step in with an answer. I just follow the debate. Yeah, I was going to ask you because you are a foodie expert, um, <laughs> and so I, my, that was going to be my question. What would your recommendation be, or you, you, you're not going to recommend? Well, I, I don't. I'm also pretty diplomatic about things, and have gotten myself into trouble, and I can stick <laughs> my foot in my mouth in a major way. So I have learned as I've gotten older not to. But I would think it's hard to make such big statements. This is such an enormous country. You know, that was, again, part of what this Globe article I'm talking about was suggesting. How can you make a, any kind of a statement or a recommendation that works in Vermont, for instance, that also works in California? Everything is so different. Conditions are so different. So I know that a lot of local dairy farmers are now looking for more local legislation. And that makes sense when you think about it. Perhaps things should be brought back to a more local level. But then do you get rid of the FDA? Nobody wants to do that. Well, maybe some people do. But it's, a, it's an enormous issue, and milk is one of the uh, boiling points there. It, it's, I think because we all like to think that milk is so pure and good for our children, and we want to think it's healthy and it's going to give them strong bones and strong teeth and all that good stuff. So to think that maybe there's something wrong with it is a little bit scary. So I guess... It's not all or nothing, and we have to take a look at it, as you say. You look at the different states, the different food industries also as well, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't necessarily have to get rid of the FDA, but maybe you can limit some of the, their power. I mean, it, uh, we tend, I also think, part of our the way we think here in the United States is this kind of all or nothing mentality, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Um, Absolutely. And here's another instance. I remember reading in, oh, where was I reading this? I can't even remember. But it was about a small family-run Italian um, butcher in New York City. And forever they had been making sausages and preparing meats on marble counters in the traditional way. And then New York State came in and wanted to do their certain health inspections. And they said, no, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do that which would change the way they process their meat. Now, they had been doing this for decades. Nobody had ever gotten sick. The meat was delicious. It was healthy. It was wonderful. And then all these new regulations came in, changing the way they could prepare and sell their products. So you wonder, if there was no problem, why come in? I guess the problem is that there are other businesses like theirs where there are problems. Here's the other side of it. I have my uh, yes. boyfriend of many, many years, was in the agribusiness, a uh, Cornell mm-hmm. graduate, and one of the biggest egg producers in, in this country. And one of the things that always, uh, he kind of brings the other side to it, he's no longer in the business, but mm-hmm. that, that egg, that these, you know, that, that you need regulations for, you know, these big farms are regulated. And now you have a lot of people, you know, who are sort of uh, gentlemen farmers raising eggs and chickens, and yet... Well, and and they often do like you'll see these television. Uh, I've seen lots of them, you know, shows where they interview these the people who are doing free range chickens and organic farming and everything. Mm-hmm. But they aren't regulated. And he exactly says, you and can get really is- really sick. You get tied in, or you get kind of hooked into this. This is natural. It's a small farm. It's a family mm-hmm. farm. But you have to be really careful about that. Absolutely, you do. And I agree completely. And that's why I said at the beginning, it's such a large country, and it's so hard to make regulations for everybody. And yet we do, because as you point out, there will be people who don't maintain the health standards or the safety precautions. And so these things are needed, but it's a, it's a difficult issue. And food is something 
we all feel so intimate about. You take it into your body. You want to think it's pure and clean and all of that. And so all of this, it's not only nutritional, it's also psychological. It's what you give your family. It's what you give your children. Um, my boyfriend's son came down with E. coli, and he was in the hospital for months because of ground beef that he had eaten. So I know exactly how, you know, what you're talking about with the egg catastrophe of, was it last year or two years ago? When was the... Uh, two years ago? I'm not sure. All the recall of eggs. Yeah, right. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you do, I mean, and you just mentioned whole other, th- I mean, this, the, the, the nurturing quality. I mean, mm-hmm. food has to, food and is equated with nurturing or a lack of nurturing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Food and nurturing go hand in hand. You know, the word means that, literally, food goes back to a root. It's this lovely root that really means to, um, to comfort to console, to soothe, all of that. And it's such a basic need that people have. You give food is love. That's on, everybody knows that one. There's a restaurant near me where all the waiters have that on their T-shirts. Food is love. Um, Or Penzi Spice gives a a sticker out that says, um, what does it say? Uh, Love people, feed them tasty food. Something like that. I'm getting it wrong. So food is so intimate it's so nurturing and it's scary to think that it can harbor parasites and it can be dangerous for you we've got a a big um, balancing act there yeah we do one last thing i want to ask you about you know you could you do mention this why fruits carry a a happier association than vegetables i happen to like vegetables better than fruit Uh, which is i mean i will crave vegetables i will not i have to kind of make myself eat fruit now maybe if the fruit was more tasty that wouldn't be true but living in the northeast living in new york um maybe that's part of the problem but the vegetables seem to taste better i don't know if that's the reason i sort of agree with you i don't have that much of a sweet tooth to tell you the truth so i love the vegetables as well the wonderful world of vegetables but i think you and i might be in the minority because if you look at children for instance and you give them a plate of vegetables and then you give them fruit you know they go for the fruit and i think a lot of people continue to go for the fruit i think you and i are very much um outvoted when it comes or we're just unique we have to say goodbye. Uh, great talking to you this morning. I want to just mention your book one more time because my next guest is here. But uh, Ina Lipkowitz, uh, mm-hmm. that's a tongue twister, your last name. Is it uh, Lipkowitz? So easy Lip- for me, but I'm used to it. Yeah, you're used to it. You know it. Uh, her new book is Words to Eat By, Five Foods and the Culinary History of the English Language. She teaches at MIT. Um, you can go online, and uh, you can buy the book at bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. Great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been Thank a lot you. of fun. It's been fun. Uh, my next guest coming up is Dr. Amir Levine, author of Attach, the New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities 
commodities and real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Fox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And joining me this morning is my second guest, author of Attached, The New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love. Uh, the author of the book is Dr. Amir Levine, adult, child, and adolescent psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, graduated from uh, Columbia University, New York Presbyterian Hospital, and he is currently a principal investigator on a research project sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. He has a private practice in New York City where he lives with his family. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Levine. Hi. It's great to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, and all, your book, of course, is perfect for February and Valentine's Day, but it's not just for that. I mean, I'm a social worker, so I'm obviously very interested in relationships and how they work and how they don't work as well. So... I guess you answer the questions, what do we know about relationships? Um, what do we know about bonding? How do we find meaningful connections? Some of us are better at it than others. These are all the things that you uh, right. explore in your book. Right, so right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really amazing, actually, because it turns out that there's a whole science behind how we behave in romantic relationships. But what we found is that a lot of people, just the general public, doesn't know about the science. And it can be so helpful. And you're going to see while we talk today how helpful it can be just conceptualizing relationships in a very, very, very different way than what we used to. Really. Well, I think it's necessary, Dr. Levine, to do that because statistically we are not doing well with that. Oh, you know? I know, I know. The odds are so much against us, it seems, right? Because not only the divorce rate is so high, but also... If, um, just from judging from the emails that I'm getting from, that we're, me and my co-author, Rachel Heller, that we're getting from people who are asking us questions, there are a lot of people who also are in relationships who are married and, and are not happy. Um, so, I mean, so this can really, really help, I think, a lot of people, I'm hoping. That's one of the reasons we wanted to write this book. Because, you know, another thing is, you're right, if people are in the relationships, even though statistically they're married, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily happy. So you yeah. add that to the divorce rate, and we're really not in a bad, not in a good place. The other statistic, I just want to mention this, too, is, isn't it that more, I mean, from the last census, that more women are li- have decided just to live by them. They live by themselves. They have children by, they decide to have babies without husbands because they don't really, for whatever reasons, but they don't seem to be gravitating toward Right. Just because I think a lot of, like, it's just, uh, it seems hard, it's, it seems like it's an age-old question, how to find the right person to attach to, right? How to find our soulmate. And 
That's one of the reasons we wanted to write this book, because science really can help you find that person. I know it sounds strange, because you think, oh, it's love, and it's something very mysterious, but it really is not that mysterious. And, I mean, one of the first things that we actually write about in the book, and probably in the first few chapters, is we really want to dispel this whole, this whole notion that dependency is, is, is a bad thing. A lot of people, like, you know, there's this whole idea of codependency, and depe- dependency has gotten a bad rap a bad, in our society. And what we're saying, just from the very get-go, is that, you know, dependency is neither good or bad. It's just a biological fact. Like, we become dependent on our significant others. Once we choose someone to attach to, it's, there's no question whether we're going to be independent or dependent. Dependency is always there. Um, and that's a very important lesson to learn. Dr. Uh, Levine, you, then if you say dependency is just dependency, it's not good or bad, uh, in the book you describe three attachment styles, and I want to go, those are obviously what we're going to talk about today, but, are you, but would you say that dependency, and sometimes I know in my head I think dependency equals neediness, and neediness doesn't sound, I don't want to be needy, I want to be independent, I don't want to be dependent. Well, you see, that so that's how a lot of people, so that's what we talk about, the dependency paradox, from if you see things from an attachment perspective, um, Really, what we say is that if you really want to be independent, then write the, find the right person to depend on, and then you can reach independence. And I know it sounds strange. Like, how can you become independent from being dependent? And I think the best way to understand that, it's, sometimes it's easier to understand attachment is if we look at um, kids and mothers, because the kids, we have the same sorts of attachment styles that kids do, that kids have, and that was the biggest finding, and it was... In 1987, two researchers, Hazen and Shaver, discovered that actually we have the same attachment styles that kids do in our adult romantic relationships, the anxious, the avoidant, and the secure. But, but the whole idea is that, uh, like, take a, a child and a mother, a toddler, and put them in a room full of toys. Immediately, the, star, the child will start like, playing, sort of going, exploring. But then if the mother steps out, and they do that, it's called the strange situation test. The child typically drops the toys, runs to the door, starts banging on the door, asking for his mom. And if you'll try to interest him with a toy, he'll just throw it in your face, basically. He wants his mom. He doesn't explore anymore. And it's very similar in adulthood. If we have someone to really rely on, then we can go out into the world and explore. We don't play with toys, but we work, and we have hobbies, and we socialize, and we parent. And so... That's what I mean. That's what we mean um, when we say that if you want to become really independent, find first the right person to depend on. Right. So what that that brings us to the there are three attachment styles. I mean, what are they? So it's anxious, avoidant, and secure, and it has to do with how we feel about intimacy and closeness. So someone who's anxious, they love to be intimate and close, but they also tend to worry a lot about not being loved back. They're very sensitive to small things that happen in their relationship. They need a lot of reassurance. So that's the anxious. And then the secure are usually warm and loving, but they don't need a lot of reassurance. They don't have a very sensitive radar system. They don't worry a lot about the relationship. And then you have the avoidant. And these are people who also, because in a way we're hardwired to be dependent. We're hardwired to want to be in a relationship uh, through evolution. So they also want to be in a relationship. But once they get close, the avoidant, something strange happens. They, start, they don't feel too comfortable with too much closeness. And then they start pushing you away. They keep you at arm's length. They have all sorts of different techniques to do that. I mean, they don't leave you, 
they don't get out of their relationship, but they want to stay in a relationship, but not too close. So these are the three attachment styles. All right. So how does that fit into every day? Are you know looking for a partner or keeping a partner or being happy with a partner? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great question. So I'll give you an example. Let's say um, I give you two examples. Let's say you're going on. Uh, you're you're going to the air, like let's say your partner is going to the airport, and um, and you tend to be anxious, and you know the weather is not so good, and um, so you, you call them or you, like, you're trying to get in touch with them on their way to the airport. Now, they're on a business trip. They're very busy. They see that you're calling. They don't have time to talk to you. They hit ignore. So you get even more anxious. You want to know, you want to know that they're okay. And so you call again and again, and they're like, if they're avoidant, they're like, oh, they're so needy. I can't take this. You just turn off the phone. Then when they call you, once they reach their destination, you're fuming. You get into this huge fight because you're on the edge of your seat. You're worried. So that, let's say you're some, you were someone secure. Usually what would happen is that they would typically text you from the cab, in the cab from the way to the airport. They'll text you just before the plane takes off. They'll text you when the plane lands. So you're not even going to have that anxiety, that anxious feeling at all. It's just never going to happen because they're so good in relationships. They'll take care of your needs before you even know you have needs. So take this scenario and multiply it. 10,000 times, and you get the difference between uh, being in a secure relationship or being in an insecure relationship. So, uh, inse- so but I just want to kind of frame this, because you can be a secure person when it comes to attachments, mm-hmm. and you can marry, or you can, your partner cannot be, but you can still have a secure relationship, because that secure person can provide... What, the, the yes, they, that's exactly it. They provide, that's one of the reasons, I mean, it's such a nice, it's really, it's quite amazing. They can make you, even if you're not secure, they can make you become more secure. We like to call them the supermates of evolution because it's like having a relationship coach built into their relationship. They're just really, they have a talent, and their talent is they're just really good in, at being in relationships. Okay, and these people don't necessarily, as you say in your book, have to be somebody who's, you know, outgoing and, um, you know, out there and the, the life of the party. It could be someone who's a, an engineer or somebody who may be kind of uh, introverted. Or <laughs> exactly. No, so secure come, we all like to say that secure people come in all shapes and forms. <laughs> They're not necessarily either one. And so in the same way about, by the way, about people who are avoidant and anxious people. And what we like to say is that for people who are anxious and avoidant, they really are not such a good match. They can really make each other's lives really miserable. And you can see they have like opposite needs in your relationship. One wants a lot of closeness and needs a lot of reassurance. The other really doesn't want too much closeness and see that need for reassurance as neediness and kind of like box away from it. So, they so really why would they, Dr. Levine, why would they be attracted to each other in the first place, the anxious and the avoidant? I mean, because those are two kind of not great uh, you know, don't have good attachment um, Right, right, and they seem to attract. So first of all, one one thing that I want to say, that a lot of people get also attracted to secures, and the secures are the majority. They're more than 50% of the population. It's just like we call them the silent majority. We don't tend to hear about these people because they're just busy being in their good relationships. We tend to hear more about the people that are having a hard time. Well, especially if you're a psychiatrist. Right, exactly. Or a social worker. Those people are the ones you're going to see. Yeah, exactly, exactly. In therapy, for sure. That's a great point, by the way. But also, just as, as friends, like when we usually hear from our friends when they complain about the relationship and when they're happy, they don't come around to say how happy they are. They're just busy, 
just being happy. <laughs> but so the thing is, why are they attracting one another? I think one of the reasons, I mean, one of the reasons is because um, there's some misconceptions about how to behave initially in um, when you're dating. And there's this whole idea that you need to um, sort of hold the cards close to your chest and, and kind of like play games in the beginning of a relationship. Uh, and I think there are a lot of books that were written that kind of like uh, cultivate that. But the truth is that if you're doing that and you're anxious, you really chance, you really stand a chance of attracting someone who's avoidant. Because if you're not really saying what your needs are from the very get-go, and you're actually playing games and you're pretending, oh, it's not doesn't really important to me if this person calls back or not, then you really stand a chance of attracting someone who's more avoidant because these are the people. So imagine that you're not actually basically stating your your needs for closeness and intimacy. But then a few weeks down, a few, a few months down the road, you say, oh, but wait a second, but actually I do want you to call me more. And I do want you to, um, I do want us to see each other a lot more often. Um, but by that time, you may have attracted someone um, avoidant, and they may not be able to give you what you want. So, so that in other words, notion... you really need to be, and this may be sound cliche-ish, but I hope it doesn't, but you have to really be your authentic self if you're really serious about pursuing or engaging in a relationship with yeah. somebody. Yeah, when you're dating, it's exactly it. And people have a hard time with it. I know sometimes I tell yeah. people, like, no, but you have to say, you, like, you need to really be so upfront. And we like to give this example of a woman that we know um, that um, she was sort of reaching 40 and she's been in several sort of unsuccessful relationships. And she wanted to, it was important for her to get married and, and have kids and, and have someone to raise the kids with. She didn't want to have kids on her own. And so she started going out on dates. And so from the very first date, she would just say, um, you know, I'm really looking to get married. I'm looking to have kids and I'm looking to do it as soon as possible. And it sounds like, like the last line you want to use in, in, the, in the first date. But it worked for her because, I mean, yes, sure, it sent a lot of people running. But that was actually a good thing. And then finally she met someone who wanted the exact same thing. And that's actually what ended up happening. So That's a great story. I, mean, I know, I know. Yeah. And people, and people have a hard time with it. But you can say things like that from a place of strength. It doesn't have to come from a place of weakness. What about, do you have an example of, because you talk, I like this, uh, you describe it as the supermates of evolution or the right. silent majority. I like the supermates super of evolution. I mean, do you, are there any people that we know, celebrities, people out there, or not necessarily celebrities, but I don't know, someone that we may be able to identify with where you have two secure people, two supermates of evolution who have been married for... You know, I like to think about, so from all the celebrities, it's actually not so difficult to think. If you think about it, you think there's so many people who get divorced. And, but then you can think about some celebrities who've been married forever, but you don't really actually hear about them too much because they've been smart enough to sort of, sort of keep their private lives away. But you can think about, um, I think, Paul Newman. Wasn't he married for, I mean, he's deceased, right? But he wasn't he married for many, many years? Yes, he was married. Well, it was their second marriage for both, I think, in the 40s, and then they were together till they, he died at age 80. So, right. yes. Yeah, so you can think about that. And, like, obviously, so you see, like, someone's, like, it's, I mean, I don't know the details exactly, but it sounds to me, because it's so hard to stay married, like, in, in, you have so many forces that act, act against it. So I think if you stay married for so many years, it might have, I mean, there's a good chance that it could have been a secure relationship. Another one that, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I read a lot of autobiographies, and Tom Brokaw has been married to the same woman that he was his high school sweetheart. 
Right. So that would also give you, again, we don't know the details inside because sometimes there are insecure people who have been, uh, who can stay married for, for, for decades, basically, and have a very, we call it the stably unstable relationship. It's unstable because they get into a lot of fights or there's a lot of drama. But it's very hard. Once you get attached to someone, it's very hard to break that attachment. Oftentimes, you don't get to decide when the attachment is off. Like, there you, go, you have to go through a certain process. So it's hard to tell. But you can sort of, I think, um, who else? There's um, Meryl Streep has been married for a long, long time, right? Yes. People, they just sort of get a sense that are more secure also. Um, but I mean, but it's, but it's hard because you really need to get into the um, to sort of see how the people are treating one another and to see that there's this stability there, like the way that I described to you, like with the texting and making sure that your partner, because basically they have this understanding that um, their partner's well-being is their well-being. That's like an axiom that they work from. That's like the basis of their life. Yep. Well, I think one of the things you said in the book is really, I mean, getting back, because we only have a few more minutes, and I could, this is a fascinating topic, but I just want to ask you this, because I think it's really important for those of us, well, I, I, I mean, I've already raised my kids, but who are, you know, raising children now, because I think the way that they, I mean, how the children are attached or not attached or to their parents has a huge, as you mentioned in the book, a big influence on their ability to be able to, to have good attachments as they get older. And I think one of the issues today, and I just want you to address this, you know, we have these, you know, what they call helicopter parents, and the attachment to children seems to be, oh, can I use the word overly attached, but kids don't seem to be able to separate themselves, I think, from their, their parents. And... So how does that affect their ability? I know ability it takes time to... for people now to. I think what happens, especially in our society now, <laughs> like it depends. It we, like people tend to. And that's one of the things about a secure base. It's also for, it, secure base is basically giving you the, the the security to know that you can go out into the world and do a lot of things. But the secure base also one of the components of a secure base is the principle of non-interference. And I think a lot of really sort of high-strung parents have a hard time with that. And also in relationships, by the way, in, in adult relationships, of letting the other person sort of have a, a, like a room to create and to think quietly without like necessarily too much interference. Um, that's a very important aspect. And then if, if there's a lot of like that throughout the whole relationship, I think it's harder for people to, um, to become more exploratory on their own. I think maybe that's one of the reasons, but it's just like one point. I'm sure that it's, it's, it's more complex than that. No, but I think you put it that that's just, you know, that, that um, the principle of non-interference. I think that's a really good, a good one to leave us with. Um, and we only have a few more minutes, but could, so what do we want to leave our audience with besides the fact that go out and buy your book, <laughs> The New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love? Um, well, you know, they can also, I mean, one of the things we want to tell people, if you're dating Definitely, like, this is a huge one for you. Find out what your attachment style is. Also, in the book, there's a quiz that you can take online. On, we have a website. It's attachedthebook.com. But also, um, get to know, we have another quiz in the book about how to tell what other people's attachment styles are. And that's hugely important. It's important. It can also be really helpful at work and also with friends. Um, and if you're in a relationship, you can become more secure. 
And once you, if you learn, again, the attachment language and about attachment styles, you can navigate your way into becoming more secure. And there are other ways to doing that. We, haven't, we didn't really get a, ten, a chance to talk about it, but there are ways of becoming more secure in your relationship, and it can really help you. Right, that's good because we want to leave people with hope if they find oh, out. Oh, definitely, when they take, it's a very if hopeful. They take the quiz, doctor, and find out that they are, you know, avoidant or anxious, and they might get. But it, 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 that's not written in stone. You no, no, that's that. one of the most amazing things about attachment styles. We're very, as humans, we're very malleable species, especially when it comes to social ability or agility, as you'd call it. And so we can become more secure, and 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 there's like different ways to do that. In the book, we really. We sort of outline some of this, the, the things that are the secrets, the, 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 the methods that secure people use. Terrific. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. You're welcome. It was great. Thank you. It was, yeah, great information. Dr. Amir Levine, MD, and he co-authored this book with Rachel Heller. Uh, and the title of the book, again, is Attached, The New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Can Help You Find and Keep Love. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on uh, VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, have a good, uh, hope you had a good morning, have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 